Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Daryl Van Tongeren is an Associate Professor of Psychology at Hope College, Michigan, and has been researching social psychology and the concept of humility for over 10 years. Today I'm talking to Daryl Van Tongeren about his book, Humble, Understand and Use the Quiet Power of an Ancient Virtue. Daryl, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Daryl, you study a branch of psychology called social psychology. What are we talking about there? With social psychology, we're talking about how we think about ourselves in the world and how we think about how the presence of other people affects how we live our lives. So how the presence of others affects how our attitudes change, how our behaviors change, and how we think about the world changes. A big focus at the beginning of your book is the idea of the self. And you specify three trends that you say have left us more miserable and with a fragile sense of self. Can you take us through those three trends? By the self, we mean how we think about or imagine ourselves in our own minds. So who it is I imagine when I think of Daryl, who you would uh, imagine uh, when you think of yourself. So it's, it's our collection of our memories, of our thoughts, of our experiences all wrapped up together. And so we've got these three converging trends in our culture The first is that we're increasingly finding that we derive our worth and our value from external sources. So what we mean by that is we only think that we're good if we meet certain external uh, standards of beauty or of wealth, or if our Instagram feed looks as attractive and as interesting as these social influencers, which none of ours do, by the way. Uh, The second is that we have an increasingly narrowing set of ideas, opinions, and attitudes to which we expose ourselves. So by that, I mean, we're selective in the type of information we seek out. So if we're politically conservative, we probably only read conservative media outlets, blogs, newsletters, things like that. And if we're liberal, the same thing, but just on the liberal side. And the third is that we have this uh, overwhelming desire for positive self-regard. And for that, what I mean is we like to see ourselves as unflinchingly positive, even when the evidence doesn't suggest that. So I always have to be thinking well and highly of myself. And so if we put our worth and value in other people's hands, and we're only exposing ourselves to a select number of people that already confirm what we already believe, and I feel like I always have to feel good, the problem is we don't have a sense of security that we're enough apart from other people. We seek validation from people who are like us, and we're completely unable to talk to people who differ from us in important ways. You do mention the idea of cognitive bias. What part does that play in these three concepts we've just talked about? Yeah, so researchers have uh, highlighted all these different cognitive biases that we have as humans. Um, We like to think that we're rational, logical, fair-minded, and objective, but the fact is that we're just simply not. And so we've got all these cognitive biases that slant us towards seeing the world as we really want to see it, rather than the world as it is. So we interpret evidence in favor of our pre-existing attitudes, or we only seek out information that we know is going to give us the answer we're already looking for. And so the problem is that we're never quite seeing the world or ourselves accurately. 
And where that can run afoul is the world becomes what we want it to be. And we're unable to see ourselves. We have this massive blind spot when it comes to evaluating ourselves. We've laid some groundwork there, but now we've got to talk about humility. What is humility? So when we're thinking about humility, I like to think about it in two different ways. So one way to think about it is humility is being the right size in a particular situation. So not too big, but also not too small. So it's where you've appropriately expressed yourself in a way in which you have accurately represented yourself. So in a situation where you're the novice, you probably wouldn't want to go in overclaiming that you know everything. But in a situation where you're the expert, you certainly want to, wouldn't want to downplay your expertise. So one way of thinking about humility is being the right size. More practically, we can think about humility as knowing ourselves, checking ourselves, and going beyond ourselves. So for knowing ourselves, it's an accurate awareness of our strengths and our weaknesses, the things that we're good at, but the areas we have to grow. To check ourselves we reel in and, and restrain our selfish motivations and our egoistic motives to seek all the, the credit and, and pass all the blame. And the third, we think about going beyond ourselves. So this is where we're prioritizing the needs of other people is equal to our own. So we're, we're not worried about only about getting our needs met, but we're worried about and empathizing with what is it like to be someone else? What, what would they need in this situation? And so when we can know ourselves check ourselves and go beyond ourselves, usually that results in us being the right size in the situation. People in general, they might confuse the idea of humility with humiliation. Can you clarify that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So this, this is a big myth. This is why sometimes uh, people struggle with the idea of, of humility. So even in our own research studies, we've asked people to recall a time when they felt um, like they acted humbly or when they felt humble. And a lot of times people will recall things like, oh, I tripped and, and fell and, and, you know, dropped all my papers everywhere and people laughed at me and I felt really humbled. It's like, no, in that situation, you felt humiliated. Um, and, and humiliation is different than humility. So humiliation is really when we're, we feel badly about ourselves or other people uh, think less of us. But true authentic humility is a deep sense of security, of knowing who you are, your strengths and your weaknesses combined. And having a, a sense of inherent worth and value, knowing that you're already enough apart from other people's evaluations. So, so humiliation and humility are quite different. And part of why humility sometimes gets a bad rap is people think it means humiliation when it certainly doesn't. And that brings us to a really important concept that's very closely related, which is self-esteem. Now, the self-esteem movement, I guess, has been going for since the 80s or 90s, and it's filtered through our education system and expanded and consolidated by social media. What's wrong with the self-esteem movement? The self-esteem movement was made all these promises that it was going to fix all these mental health and social connection problems. They thought if we just get people to, to think highly enough of themselves, everything should be fine. The problem with that is if I think incredibly highly of myself, but because of the three trends we talked about earlier, I have a very fragile ego. And what that means is anytime I encounter any information that suggests I'm not as great as I think I am in my own mind, I'm going to lash out. I'm going to get defensive. I might even get aggressive. And I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to reassert that I really am as good as I think I am. And sometimes that means putting other people down, disparaging people who aren't like me, and being prejudiced towards people who seem different from me. So self-esteem is this fixation on feeling good or evaluating yourself positively all the time. 
And quite frankly, it's, it's just unrealistic. I can't be good at everything. There are a number of things I'm quite terrible at. Standing and moving, anything that requires me to stand and move at the same time, water skiing, roller skating, I'm quite terrible at. I'm okay with that. I don't have to be the best at everything. And so humility allows us to have a, have a healthy sense of self-esteem without letting our ego run amok. It keeps us in check. It, it reminds us we, we can't be good at everything. That's simply unrealistic. And so it's a balance of security and the right size of self-esteem. And that brings me to the idea of humility and its benefits to, well, the individual and also to society. What can it bring? Yeah, so modern science has really confirmed what philosophers have been saying for a long time, and that is humility has incredibly transformational benefits. So there are three primary ones I'll touch on quickly. So the first benefit is humility transforms relationships. So countless studies have found that people are more likely to want to be friends with someone who's humble, date a humble partner, uh, work for humble leaders. They're more likely, if they're in a relationship with someone who's humble, to be satisfied with that partner, uh, commit to that partner, and then repair their relationship when things go sideways or when things go wrong. And so really, the first benefit of humility is it just, it just transforms your relationship. Who wouldn't want to be in a relationship with someone who's checking themselves seeking to know themselves and is, is wondering what is it like to be you and putting your needs first. The second thing that we see that humility does is it really helps uh, manage the wear and tear of conflict. And so what we see is research has found that in, in situations where conflict is likely, so in power differentials, maybe you're thinking like a boss, maybe you're thinking in intercultural situations, political divides, religious conflict, Humility helps us see the other person's side, reach out with empathy, and it can help reduce some of that conflict and some of that relational wear and tear. And the third thing that researchers have found is humility is actually good for your health. It improves your well-being. So my colleagues and I have done studies where we look at people who are particularly stressed out. So for example, couples who are having their first child. And what we find is that when both partners are humble, they report less anxiety and less stress when, they're, when they undergo the transition to parenthood. Similarly, we find that when we bring couples into the lab and we ask them to talk about the issue in their relationship that they struggle with the most, where they have the most disagreements, and then we have them argue on camera in front of us in the lab, when we measure their, their physiology, their bodily response to stress, what we find is when both partners are more humble, their physiological response to stress is actually better. So there's this cardiovascular benefit to having both partners be humble. So it improves your relationship, it helps with the wear and tear of conflict, and it's good for your well-being. Can we measure humility in any way? We can. I mean, researchers initially were a little stumped by the problem, because you might imagine if, uh, if we were to measure humility by asking people, how humble are you, like we do with other character traits, you might kind of imagine the irony of that. So if someone reports a high score, are they actually humble, right? Or are they someone who's narcissistic and arrogant and thinking, oh, I'm, I'm the best at humility. I'm the, I'm the most humble person that ever was. That, that might sound familiar to some. And so what researchers have done is they've asked other people to rate someone's humility. So for example, if I were to ask my wife or my friends or my coworkers, and all of them would evaluate how humble I am in different contexts, what we can do is we can see across these different contexts, across these different relationships, how humble do other people judge me to be? And that's a pretty uh, strong estimate of someone's humility. I was intrigued by the idea of the above average effect. Can you explain that? 
this is something I do in all of my uh, classes uh, as a college professor when I'm, when I'm teaching social psychology. I ask participants or I ask my students, think of the average, so for them, average college students. So listeners would think about just the average person their age. Compare to the average person from one to a hundred, one being the worst, hundred being the best. Where do you fall on things like intelligence, how attractive you are, how sociable you are, things like that. And what we find is that most people think that they're above average, which mathematically is simply impossible, right? In my class, at least half of the students should think of themselves as below average. And even when I mention this to my class, they just kind of chuckle and they smile. But deep down, what they actually think is they themselves are indeed above average, but it's the other people who need to be giving themselves the lower ratings. And so all of us have this bias to think we're just a little bit above average and other people are just a little worse off than us. And this is just an example of how these cognitive biases are so deep and so natural that it's hard for us to see the world uh, in ways in which we're not at the center and ways in which we're not overwhelmingly positive. Let's move on to the idea of humility in a wider context in, in society. And we live in the midst of a society which is absolutely obsessed with wealth and power and celebrate ambition and achievement. Are ambition and achievement at odds with the idea of humility? Most of the scientific research says is no. And in fact, in order to achieve anything significant, and in order to command a sense of ambition, one would need humility. And so we can look at this from two different ways. So in one regard, we think about someone who's leading an effort, a very lofty, ambitious goal that they might have. And especially if they're trying to get their followers or get their team to accomplish this goal, Leaders who aren't humble usually burn out their employees. They burn out their followers. They're not willing to, to listen. They're not willing to go along with this lofty and ambitious goal. But leaders who have humility can actually ask quite a bit of their, of their followers, of their team. And in doing so, because they're humble, their team is more likely to, to seek out these goals and have these positive experiences while they do. So humility actually allows us to set loftier more ambitious goals and get other people to rally around us because they want to be, they want to work with us. They want to be part of the team. The second way that humility is, is so integral to ambition and achievement is any type of, of technological advance or innovation or cultural progress requires a sense of intellectual humility. We have to say, I don't know something and I want to learn. I want to be curious and we have to follow the evidence. And so I would suggest that humility is necessary if we want to make any kind of progress. We want to, we want to lead, we want to have ambitious ambition, we want to achieve. We have to admit the things that, that we don't know. And then we have to see the world accurately for how it is. If I think I'm already the best, and clearly the evidence is not confirming my view, I'm not going to be able to, to achieve anything great or set a high ambition, and I'm going to be stagnant. But if we can see the world as it is and be curious to learn and, and move along the way of the evidence and follow the evidence, that's how we're going to find and make real sustained progress. I want to move on to the idea of humility and the way it intersects with other social constructs, including race, class, gender and disability, all things that are very much on the agenda these days. What does the research show in relation to humility? The research on humility, especially in those different intersecting identities, is pretty powerful. And I'll, and I'll start with prefacing by saying, I understand I'm a, I'm a white male. 
And oftentimes when I talk about the power of humility, people have said, you know, humility has really been used uh, to oppress marginalized groups in the past because what they will tell people is, oh, just be humble. And really what that means is, you know, be quiet, stay in your lane, don't speak up. And that, could, that couldn't be farther from the, the truth of what actual humility is. And now it's true that humility has been used and misused in that way, but that's not authentic humility. And so if we think about authentic humility as that security that comes from knowing your strengths and weaknesses and being the right size, for some groups, especially historically marginalized groups, what that means is right sizing up. So taking up more space than they previously have been told or, or been allowed to take, uh, to take up, so, so to speak. Now, if we turn to the science, what we find is that there's a particular uh, expression of humility that's called cultural humility. Now, cultural humility is when I can understand and acknowledge that my way of seeing the world, my cultural worldview, kind of how I view the world, is only one way of seeing the world. And it's not superior. It's not the only way. And in fact, it's not the only right way of seeing the world. And instead, I view other cultural differences, other identity differences, religious, political, uh, across any number of intersecting identities, as a strength. And I view other people's worldviews with curiosity and a desire to learn. And in fact, what I, what I view is that the, the greater diversity we have, the stronger our communities will be. And so cultural humility is this acknowledgement. It's, it's not my way is not the only way of seeing the world. In fact, I want to learn from other people so I can appreciate perspectives that they can bring. You say in the book that humility is a tough sell. How much of that tough sell is about defining or redefining humility as a strength rather than a weakness? Yeah, I think that's about half the battle. I do say that it's a tough sell because most people, you know, they think, you know, nice guys finish last or they think, you know, this is just something that's weak and what we really need is power. We need, you know, self-promotion. We need brand management. But the science couldn't be clearer that humility is so transformative and so powerful. And so I do think half of it really is getting the word out that humility has been misused and misunderstood. And, and the way that humility has been described isn't actually humility. And so understanding that it's a, it's a secure strength, it's knowing that you're already enough, you're already worthy, you're already loved, apart from external factors or other people's approval, that can be liberating. Because when we realize that we're already enough, that we already are people of inherent worth and value, then we're free to follow our values. We don't have to chase whatever it is that's trendy. We don't have to live up to these unrealistically high standards of beauty, wealth, uh, leisure, travel, any number of things that we're going to continually fail on because of, of, of uh, you know, the comparison towards social media. The other reason that makes it a hard sell is that most people that need humility the most might say, oh, I don't need that. And the people that say, oh, you know, humility, I, I think I could probably develop that. Th that's great. Those are the people who are already starting that journey. So if, if, if any listeners are thinking, oh, you know, humility is, I, I think I could work on that. That's follow that instinct, you're, you're already part of the way there. And if you're listening and you're like, oh, humility, I'm actually really, really good at humility, you might actually want to pick up the book because uh, there might be a thing or two in there for you. You indicate in the book that uh, humility may be a path to greater honesty, which seems to be what you're getting at there. How do we cultivate humility in ourselves and that sense of greater honesty, the pathway to greater honesty? Yeah, so it's tough. The first thing I'll say that is, um, it, I don't have a quick fix or a life hack that you can do this in 72 hours and then all of a sudden you're going to be humble. It, it's going to be a path, like you said. And so the first thing that we do um, is we need to seek out honest feedback from people that we trust. 
And so you need to ask someone whose opinion you value, but also you know that you can trust um, that they're going to tell you the truth and ask them how humble you are. Ask them to identify some of your, your areas of growth, some of your blind spots, some of the things that you may not be seeing. The second thing we need to do is be ready for that feedback. Um, <laughs> some of us might think that we're just inviting, you know, showers of praise about our own humility, but when you do get the feedback, resist the urge to get defensive. Okay, if, if some other folks are saying you're not humble, they're by default, they're right because you're not acting in a way that is conveying to them a sense of humility. And so you need to reduce your defensiveness when you get that feedback. The third thing that we can really do is we can work hard to cultivate empathy. So empathy is the ability to take someone else's perspective and really wonder what it is that they're feeling at that moment. So it's it's both cognitive, so kind of thinking, what are they thinking? What's their perspective? But also emotional. What are they feeling in this situation? Because empathy really unlocks the key to humility. Once we can do that, once we start thinking about others, we move ourselves from the center of our own mental universe and we put other people more near the center. And that helps transform how we interact with people. And then finally, I use the metaphor of it's kind of like training for a marathon, right? Humility, you have to put in the practice every day, every week. You have to log the miles or you kind of have to log the practice and you'll have setbacks and that's okay. But the goal is to try to be a little bit more humble today than you were the day before. Speaking about marathons, I understand that you yourself had the goal of undertaking a triathlon and you admit to being a very poor swimmer. Uh, tell me about the lessons you undertook, your swimming lessons in 2019. Humility or humiliation? Well, it, it started as uh, it started as humiliation. So I, I was a marathoner and I was looking for a next challenge. And my wife uh, signed up for a few triathlons. And I thought, you know, this would be kind of fun. I, we could train together. Um, and so I signed up for a, a half Ironman. And so that involved um, a 1.2 mile swim as the first of the three legs. Now, when I signed up... Um, I couldn't swim, didn't know how to swim. And so my wife very kindly for my birthday bought me uh, swimming lessons, but she purchased them from the very best coach in the state. Now, this coach thought that I was a collegiate swimmer who was just trying to you know, improve my time or, or take the next step to triathlons. But I told him, no, I really don't know how to swim. So he told me to jump in the pool. And when he told me to swim to the other side, once again, I, I pleaded my last since I didn't know how to swim. I only got two strokes in and then I had about an hour's worth of humiliation because that's how long my, you know, the swim lesson was for. And so he ultimately humiliated me and I realized pretty quickly I wasn't going to get anywhere just being yelled and cursed at for, you know, 60 minutes a week for the next four weeks. And I definitely wasn't going to learn how to swim. So I called the local gym and they asked, oh yeah, no problem. You know, how old is your child? And I said, oh no, no, th this is actually for me. Um, and, and at that moment, I, I felt embarrassed. I felt like uh, I felt a little bit ashamed. And I had the opportunity to say, you know what, never mind. I'm just going to muscle through or just drop out of the triathlon. But instead, I said, no, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a full grown man. I'm an adult. <laughs> I don't know how to swim. And in fact, as a child, I failed swim lessons multiple times despite my parents' best efforts. And so I, I got a, a swim coach who was also the middle school swim teacher. And while she had practice going in one pool, she came over to my pool and taught me how to swim. And for a while, it was a little, um, I felt a little embarrassed. But to be honest, the more I was there, the more my confidence grew. And in fact, the first person I texted when I finished the triathlon was, was my coach, Melissa. And I said, hey, Melissa, I finished the triathlon and I couldn't have done it if you didn't teach me how to swim and I could, and I could swim those 1.2 miles uh, to start. So 
it, it took a bit of humility. It took a bit of me owning honestly that I was not good at swimming. In fact, I'm, I'm terrible at swim, swimming. I'm still, I'm still okay. I, I won't drown now. Um, but it took a bit of humility to get that started. My final question to you, Daryl, is about the way humility can facilitate change. But in order to facilitate that change, we have to keep an open mind. How do we open our minds to the possibility of humility working for us? The first is to admit that we don't know everything, right? It's to admit that uh, we don't want to be the same person we are in 10 years that we are today. And if we are, um, we've probably let ourselves down. So just admitting that we're, we don't have it all figured out, that we are a constant work in progress. I think that's the first step. And then the second is really to, to work on getting that feedback and trying to get a more accurate assessment of who we are, rounded out the good and the bad, um, and getting comfortable with the things that we, uh, we might consider to be weaknesses or growth areas. Because this is the beauty. When, when we realize that humility will help us see the areas where we need to grow, then we can see that as a challenge. It's not a threat. I didn't know how to swim. Then I did something and now I do know how to swim. I probably still won't be a great roller skater or water skier and that's okay. Uh, and I've just come to terms with that. But having an accurate view of yourself can actually be pretty liberating because it also helps you understand the things you are better at. And you can decide, do I wanna grow in the areas where I might have some room to grow or do I really wanna lean into the areas where I'm really good? Daryl, thank you for sharing your ideas and thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been talking to Daryl Van Tongeren about his book, Humble, Understand and Use the Quiet Power of an Ancient Virtue. It's published by Welbeck and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.